Hi, I'm Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and welcome back to ETFs at 16, a special three-part podcast looking at the coming of age of the exchange-traded fund market in the UK. In this episode, we're going to be looking at how you can use ETFs in your own portfolio, and we'll talk a bit about the types of assets, market and sector which could outperform this year. Joining me again are Adam Laird, Passive Investment Manager at Hargreaves Lansdowne, Ben Seager-Scott, Director of Investment Strategy at Tilney Best Invest, and Joe Parkin, Head of Wealth for iShares in the UK. Joe, what should be your starting point for putting together an ETF portfolio? I think there are four things that you should consider you know, as a starting point to putting together your ETF portfolio. Firstly, establish your portfolio goals, define a target, risk budget, and any constraints you may have. The second one is define your investment universe. You know, within guidelines, define an opportunity set that you're going to go after. Thirdly, define allocations. So are you going to go active, passive, systematic or qualitative approach? And then monitor and reallocate as that, that portfolio over time. So it's very important to monitor that portfolio over time and make sure that the portfolio drive it back to its objectives and make sure it's achieving those. Okay, Ben, what do you think? I mean, should you be thinking about this as a kind of core holdings, satellite holdings approach or, you know, what's your view on putting one together? I think the way you construct a portfolio can be actually quite personal to the investor. So a lot of it comes down to, to an individual investor's style. You know, they, they might want to blend, as Joe mentioned, active and passive, decide which way you want to go. If you're looking at an active and passive blend, you know, do you have a passive core and then try and have very active stock picking managers on top to add a lot of alpha? Or do you primarily use active managers as your core and then use passives to reflect maybe tactical views? Those are, are common routes. But if you're looking for a passive-only portfolio or as close as you can get, given the asset classes that are covered, I think from that point of view, it's very similar to how you'd look at a purely active portfolio, to be honest, in my view. You would start with your broad asset allocation. So look at the broad different markets, take a view, equities, bonds, uh, and then drill down, decide if there's any sort of sub-allocation you want to look at. So in equities, things like geographical exposures, sector exposures, and then you can really try and fine-tune which ETFs and which passives you use. So you can have broad market exposure, you can really target in with some of the, the sector and country-specific ETFs. And then towards the end, maybe think, do you want to add some sort of tilt, depending on your feeling about smart beta? Do you want to use some of the, the value or the quality, very, very common examples of of factor uh, ETFs? Or is there an income requirement in, in the objective? Which of those do you want to use? And I think that really comes at the end once you've built the, the basic asset allocation exposure of your portfolio. It's really the, the factor and style tilts you get at the end. And that's very similar to what many investors will do with an active portfolio, decide which asset classes they want exposure to first, and then picking a manager. Adam, what do you think about that, that idea of using smart beta in almost a kind of satellite holdings way? Are, are there times when you should just definitely stick to a plain vanilla ETF or not? There's no right answer. For a core of a portfolio, I think that standard mainstream indices are often the simplest way to do it and the lowest cost way to get access. But smart beta can provide something extra. It can do things that active managers would have done in your portfolio in the past, like providing income, reducing risks or boosting returns. Overall, you need to be making the decision because there's a trade-off. Smart beta is, can be more complex and often is slightly more expensive, but you need to make sure that you're getting something extra for that and something that suits your needs. And so how, how do you decide on that? I mean, do you think these the things like 
value, momentum, those styles that we've mentioned, are those the areas where you think you can put a bit more trust in Smart Beta? Are there... Or is it a case of saying, oh, I want some income. There's an ETF with income in the title. You need to understand what you are investing in before you've got it. Um, those, the, the factors that you mentioned there are uh, concepts that have come through academia that have been researched and have been shown that in the long run they can add something extra to a portfolio. There's nothing that's guaranteed in this world. This might not be the same and you might find that even with those that you'll find n- periods of negative performance uh, over time. But if you want to take that chance you may well get rewarded for it over the long run. You may well get those extra returns. Okay, well, I think we'll come we'll come back to that um, in a bit. But we've touched on um, income there. Joe. what do you think about using ETFs for income? Are there special ways of doing this other than just having a distributing share class? Certainly, I think ETFs are a fantastic way to play income. Not only have we got the traditional income, so fixed income as well as equity income, but there was also some alternatives which um, throw off a bit of income that can be put in a, an ETF, such as infrastructure equities or property equities. I think through an ETF, an investor can get a, a really great basket of income securities. Our UK dividend ETF offers clients access to 50 of the highest income pairs in the UK in one single trade, and at the moment throws off an income of 5.7% um, annually. Um, we see investors using more and more kind of e- ETFs for income and particularly in the fixed income space, obviously that's been an enormous growth for us in the last couple of years, you know, with huge amount of flows going into the product, not only in 2015, but year to date in 2016. That idea of kind of dividend weighted um, products or ETFs which select equities on the basis of the highest dividend payers. Adam, what, what do you think of that kind of strategy? Because that seems like an area which might be appealing from an ETF perspective over another fund, but have they been around for long enough? These are popular. We find that income is, is probably the most popular of the smart beta strategies with the, with the clients through Hargreaves Landstown. And it is something that has traditionally been done very well by active managers, but ETFs are now moving into this space more. There are some products that have been around for over 10 years, which have built up a record in this. But there are some that perhaps take a little bit of a simplistic approach to to how to to, to gain income from uh, from investments. So I think that it's important that people look at the record of a of a strategy and make sure that you're not taking on any any inadvertent risks whenever you whenever you choose an income producing ETF. OK, so you think look at methods and then look at track record if you want to test track record's a very good indicator here read through the rules read through the documentation on it and make sure you're comfortable with what's being done okay and um talking of other etfs which seem a cure-all <laughs> but may not be ben there are etfs which you can use to avoid market turbulence aren't there it's kind of minimum volatility etfs how well have these been performing do you think do they do the trick well, I think as with most of these sort of smart beta ETFs, you've got to bear in mind they're not silver bullets. They're markets they're good for and markets that they're, they're less well designed for. Um, in terms of, of market uh, turbulence and volatility, the minimum volatility strategies essentially aim to have lower volatility and generally that manifest as falling not, not as far 
when markets are going down, but they're not rising as much when they recover. And actually, minimum volatility, uh, it, it's only a very short sample. But if you look at the volatility we've had since the start of this year, actually, minimum volatility strategies have done what, what you expected uh, and held up. But also, minimum volatility is one route. Uh, another route that, you know, I, I know we'll talk about it later, but it is something that, that I use in some of my portfolios. There are also quality indices in these target companies that have low leverage, stable earnings and high return on equity. And they also have this sort of defensive character and they also held up very well in in the recent turbulence. So, I mean, do you think with both of those, are you essentially just buying a sector at the end of the day or or is it more complicated than that? I think it is more complicated and it comes down to the methodology. So a a very simple methodology might just choose the lowest volatility or, or, or create a portfolio that overall has lower volatility or higher quality uh, companies, regardless of sector or country. Some some strategies apply sector constraints, some uh, apply country constraints to try and get around the fact exactly right that certain sectors, certain countries lend themselves more towards these characteristics. Okay, so thinking about this year and, and actual ETFs that, that you might like, Ben, which do you think will be the equity markets to be invested in and how will you be playing them with ETFs? Uh, so, so you're just asking me for my investment <laughs> asking outlook you and, and making me, uh, trying to make me rec- record it. Um, <laughs> well, o- overall, uh, it's a challenging environment. Our, our investment outlook, which is you know all I can really talk to uh, on this, it, it does look challenging. We've had a, a long period of, of excess liquidity. Uh, it's been a good few uh, bumper years fueled by things like QE. The economic backdrop, uh, from my point of view, looks looks a lot more challenged. So overall, I'm pretty cautiously positioned uh, across all of all of the different equity classes. Within that, I tend to favour European markets. Uh, ECB is engaged in QE. It's price insensitive. It's not necessarily helping boost the economy directly, but it is supporting asset prices. So overall, I'm pretty positive uh, on Europe. But within that, you know. Particularly, in, so I manage the advanced passive portfolios. I'm a co-manager on that, and that's predominantly passive. And there, we do try and use some of these more smart beta type approaches. Most of that is try and get some of this, uh, some of our defensive views in there. So Europe is is full of a lot of banks. They've struggled a lot recently. So actually, the sort of instruments we use in there, uh, one is a Eurostox, um, a Eurostox X Financials to reduce exposure to the banks. Uh, Also, we use, it's actually the iShares product, we use uh, the quality and uh, the the value indices for those. Again, trying to get defensive characteristics. A a market we're particularly wary on is things like the US. It does look expensive. Valuations are very high. uh, And there we prefer more of a a value play. So there we use a a product from Invesco PowerShares, the Rafi um, US 1000. And across the income, we we did just talk about income. There we try and take a a blend. We've got things like the iShares UK dividend that was talked about, a bit more of a a forward-looking measure. Um, But also the the Spider, the SPDR dividend aristocrats that have this backward-looking quality uh, aspect as well. So quite a lot of different routes we're taking, to, to particularly the equity markets. Okay, great. Thanks. And Adam, I'm going to put you on the spot now about gold and oil. <laughs> um, we're obviously seeing a lot of buzz about those two commodities at the moment. Now, I guess taking a bit of a step back, you can use exchange-traded products, not funds, can't you, to invest directly in commodities <coughs> in a totally different way to other funds. Can you just briefly explain that? <laughs> That's right. Exchange-traded commodities are uh, a relation of an exchange-traded fund. Uh, Their structure is slightly different. Um, With commodities, generally physical metals, precious metals, it's quite simple. Um, ETC will have 
the entitlement to some gold which is held in a vault somewhere and its price moves along with the gold price. But with other commodities like oil, it's not uh, feasible to hold thousands of barrels of oil. Uh, It's with agricultural produce they would spoil, for example. So these tend to use um, commodity uh, futures derivatives in order to get exposure to them. Futures uh, based commodities products tend to be a lot more sophisticated. They can be expensive to hold and there are more risks involved with this. But a lot of people, a lot of uh, individual investors will tend to, to use physical gold products. They've been a very popular trade this year. And uh, what do you think about that? Do you think gold and oil are good trades now or no? These are good trades as a small part of a portfolio because they add diversification. Often they their price rises when traditional assets like shares or bonds falls. So they can add something additional, but there are issues as well. And I don't think that people should be using these as the, as the large part of their core portfolio. Gold, for example, is a metal. It doesn't pay income. It doesn't pay dividends. So whilst interest rates are are pretty low at the moment, when they rise, gold might look a bit unattractive. Okay. And there are other risks associated with ETCs, aren't there, in relation to just derivatives trading and and the kind of the different prices of the futures of oil and the spot price of oil, which you pay for with an ETC. Am I right? That's right. Futures derivatives that an ETC buys are valid for a short period of time and the ETC can't actually let it mature and collect the the its entitlement to the oil. The tanker can't roll up at iShares. And- <laughs> so what they need to do is sell the derivative and buy a new one. The prices differ at various different points and that means that there's a charge, a cost to the investment and it might be well over 10% per year cost that's involved in this. So my concern with them is for an individual, it's very difficult to access this information about how much it costs. So these are really only suitable for sophisticated investors who who have access and who really understand those markets. Okay. And what about bonds, which uh, obviously are more, I guess, a more normal kind of way to invest for the private investor? Joe, obviously you can use ETFs for bonds. Are there advantages to doing that? Yeah, sure. There's certain advantages to doing it. I think bond ETFs are coming of age and becoming so much more important in the financial ecosystem. Um, obviously, the take-up's been slightly slower than equities, but awareness is is definitely growing. I think you know there is a there's a huge search for income going on at the moment, um, and so you know people have been looking more at you know fixed income and um, different types of bonds that they may not be able to get hold of directly. So in high yield or emerging markets, I think we're looking at the end of a a 30-year bull market in bonds. And so people are becoming more aware of what they're holding in the fixed income space. And they also want to be more nimble. And I think the ETF provides a lot of that. We've also seen a lot more sort of institutional usage by fixed income portfolio managers who are finding it harder and harder to kind of find the liquidity they need in the markets. And so use the ETF. And this is this is where the secondary market element um, of an ETF becomes very, very important. And so we should just probably clarify that. And this is the idea that actually when you're trading an ETF, you don't have to be trading the underlying stocks because the ETF is listed. Right? Yeah, so that there are many, many days that we see, you know, within our business and within the ETF business where you can have 
hundreds of investors trading our fixed income ETFs without actually us needing to go to the underlying bond market to create new units of the funds. So at every point in time, we see a lot of buyers and sellers. And this is where fixed income ETFs, given the spreads that you sometimes see on fixed income securities, um, become really, really interesting, not just for retail clients, but also for institutional clients. So sometimes, you know, when there may be stresses in the high yield market, some people see opportunity and some people see they want to get rid of their bonds. And those two meet in the middle and we see a huge amount of trading going on, but actually we don't need to reach into the underlying bond market. You're just buying shares off each other as such. And this is what um, an ETF does in the marketplace. Yeah. And I mean, we've obviously had a lot of headlines from the US about the volume of trading in high yield bonds, particularly around all of that volatility last year. And progress does seem to have been slower in this market. And there does seem to be controversy around it. Adam, why do you think that is? The controversy focuses around this idea of liquidity. The concern is that because ETFs trade much more frequently than the investments within them, that that could break down at some stage and there could be an issue for investors in selling their ETFs. This has happened in some places in in the States. We haven't experienced this in the UK, but it is a possibility and it is a danger. Investors need to exercise some caution here. It's always wise that if markets look like they are facing problems, that there's some uh, high levels of, of, of trading and, and things are looking irrational. You might need to take a step back and leave it for, for some period of time. So just because ETFs can trade every day and throughout the day as an investor, don't go in with the with your intention to be trading frequently throughout the day because you might find yourself getting in problems. Yeah, can I just ask you that, Ben? Do you think that's, is that a worry, this this kind of liquidity and everyone frantically trying to sell bonds ETFs at the same time? Well, yeah, and I think Adam's really hit the, the nail on the head. And the, the fact is, uh, liquidity around ETFs is often a confusing subject. People say, oh, it's, it's very liquid. But ultimately, if there's one way liquidity, it can only be as liquid as the underlying. And what we've been talking about today, this is two-way liquidity. So as long as there's buyers and sellers, you can trade pretty significant volumes and you don't have to touch the underlying which can cost more to trade so it reduces those frictional costs and that's why you can see a lot more liquidity in the ETF market than the underlying but that's different to one-way liquidity where everyone is trying to get out and you've got to remember liquidity tends to be one way you might say this market isn't very liquid well I can tell you if there's a panic and everyone's trying to sell it's very easy to buy a, a high yield bond or a high yield ETF because it's, it's, you know, very much one way. And that's where things can get uh, a little bit more hairy. And it, it is a very live discussion in the industry, particularly between active and passive. You know, are ETFs causing problems or are they, in fact, a form of price discovery? Uh, and a lot of bond managers, when there's blood on the streets, they tend to panic, put their head in the sand and say, oh, my bond isn't crashing because there's sort of a, an unofficial agreement between all of the world's high yield bond fund managers not to buy or sell because then you'll realise what it's actually worth. I'm going to have to ask you, Joe, what you think about that. I mean, have you seen massive exits or, or mass selling of high yield bonds in distress periods recently? Yeah, I think we have. And I think like all of the things we've been saying and and um, the ETF is now, the fixed income ETF and the high yield ETF has now been put through a number of very important stress tests and in every single situation I think has come out you know very positively so this whether this was over the financial crisis or whether this was last year uh, late last year in December where high yield markets experienced a significant amount of stress you know I think there's been 
a number of things that have happened in the industry that have meant that, you know, as, as, as Ben said, as ETFs become price discovery mechanism, but I am... Um, we have put these things through a stress and they've always come out and, and done exactly what we said. And, you know, to Ben's point, um, we always think that the ETF is never going to be less liquid than the underlying. So, you know, and, and at the end of the day, um, we have the ability to um, give the underlying securities to the investor if if that is a problem, as well as the fact that all the trading costs happen with outside the fund. So, you know, whatever price the bonds are trading at, you're always going to be able to trade them as such and so you couldn't foresee an issue if if everybody tried to sell at once and you you couldn't redeem or give them back the underlying bonds i'm not gonna say that i couldn't foresee something because you can never say that but i think that there have been a number of different events in the last five years that put the etf under significant stress and the fixed income markets under significant stress and the etf has performed incredibly well and um, has come out with it with even more fans than it previously had so i think it continues to you know, and particularly in the institutional space. I mean, that's where we've really seen um, a huge, huge interest and uptick in people wanting to use the, ET- the, the fixed income ETFs. You know, bond managers are putting this as part of the tools they use in order to manage their portfolios more and more. So it may be a place where they don't have expertise, such as I don't know, municipal bonds or mortgages in the US or emerging markets, or it may be just them using it to efficiently manage their portfolios on the active side and make sure that you know their, their cash is equitised when they get it and that sort of stuff. Okay, thanks. And uh, we're almost out of time for this episode, but I just want to ask you, Ben, for maybe your top mistake or top two mistake you think private investors make investing with ETFs? I think the two most common that I come across, the first it is around cost and just looking at the reported OCF, that's a, a static number. And we covered previously the additional costs, there's trading costs and, and other uh, different costs within the ETF itself. And then there's the, these additional uh, external costs, so your cost of trading, your bid offer spread. Uh, and investors often forget that and just say, what's the cheapest? They look at this one number and that's not always uh, the whole picture. So it's not paying close enough attention to those costs. Uh, and I think the other one is really perhaps not understanding the index and just reading at the top line, oh, what's it do? You know, it, it invests in, in value uh, value equities or it's a Asia-Pacific tracker and not really doing their homework. So really understand the index and make sure you do your homework on the cost. Thanks very much. That is all we've got time for in this episode. And next time, we're going to do some myth busting around ETFs and look at controversy and market debates, or I should say more controversy and market debates. Joe, Ben and Adam will be back in the studio. So tune in next time for ETFs at 16. And thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.